Hello, Monetization Nation. I'm Nathan Gwilliam, your host, and today I'm joined by Brian Clayton. Brian is the CEO and co-founder of GreenPal, which is an online marketplace that connects homeowners with local lawn care professionals. Before starting GreenPal, Brian founded Peachtree, one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee, growing it to more than $10 million a year in annual revenue. In today's episode, we're going to discuss Brian's entrepreneurial journey and five tips he has for creating a technology business. We're also going to cover the following key takeaways. Number one, authenticity can be a huge competitive advantage. Number two, we should learn the necessary skills required to run our business or build our technology. Number three, we should focus on the little things and then let the little things compound to become big things. Number four, we should start with a core customer problem and build everything else in our business around it. Number five, we can learn from our competitors. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Brian. Nathan, thanks for having me on. Great to be here. And, and uh, you inspire me by, by plowing through with a case of bronchitis. I'd probably be in bed if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know I sound kind of funny. So can you start off by sharing with us something that you are super passionate about? Super passionate about creating products from scratch that people use and people get a little bit of value out of. That has been one of the coolest things I've ever done with my life. It's been probably the thing that's lent the most uh, meaning and purpose to my life, uh, particularly the project I'm working on now, GreenPal, which is like the Uber for lawn mowing. We have something around 25,000 lawn care services that use the app to run their lawn care business. And so they use our app to, to run their whole livelihood, I guess you could say. It helps them make material income and they get real value out of it. A few hundred thousand homeowners use it too to get this chore done, but where we really have impact is with small business owners that use it. So that's been something that's lended my life purpose. It's lended my life a lot of joy and it's something I'm passionate about It's creating the platform that helps people make a living and make more money. I love it. And that's a, a great idea uh, to, to build one of those share gig economy marketplaces for lawn care. Um, if there's someone on the show who's interested or someone listening to the show who's interested in in creating a gig or share economy marketplace within a different niche, what advice can you give them about building that type of a business? Did you build your technology from scratch? Did you license technology? How, how did you deal with the technology side? Yeah, I think, I think that like authenticity can be a competitive advantage. And so for me, my first business was a landscaping company. I mowed grass in high school, mowed grass all through college over a 15 year period of time, built, built this little lawn mowing business to like 150 people, 10 million a year in revenue in 2013, sold that company. And so 15 years I spent in one industry, I kind of saw it from every angle you could see it from. And so when I sold the business, I got bored and I retired, you know, I was able to retire didn't have to work anymore, which is nice, but I got bored and I thought, well, what am I going to do now? Well, um, you know, I see what Uber and Airbnb and, and Lyft are doing, you know, maybe I can build an app that can make the whole thing run smoother and faster and quicker and cheaper for everybody. And, and, uh, so I set out to do that. And the only thing I had, uh, going for me was that I had all of the experience with how the industry worked. I, I knew all of the pain points that needed to be solved with technology. And it's probably one of the main reasons why we were able to kind of get through the early years, which, which were the hardest because I kind of had that, that context. And so, um, 
I see a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of new startups trying to innovate in spaces that they don't have any sort of authenticity. You know, maybe they want to start a home cleaning service or the, or a, a uh, an app that is like the Uber for home cleaning, but they've never cleaned a home in their life. Or uh, maybe they want to start a, a good gig economy that that uh, connects uh, people with laundry services and they've never, they've never ran a dry cleaning service. And so it's really hard to innovate and like bring online the, the, the gig economy kind of analog uh, if you've never actually done it. So I think no matter what you are doing, authenticity can be a competitive advantage and it certainly has been for us. And, uh, but the, the technology execution of it is, is hard too, you know, uh, but the problem is if you don't have the, the perspective and you don't have the context, then you build all the wrong stuff. You, you build the wrong technology. And so at least we had that going for us, but the first three, four years were really hard. We had to, had to learn how to build software, how to teach ourselves, how to code, how to teach ourselves, how to design software and market software. And that was really, really, really challenging. So did you build it from scratch or did you use existing technology? So, uh, the, the first mistake we made, um, this is 2014. We, none of us, my two co-founders and I did not know how to code. And, and so we thought, well, all we need to do is just outsource this to a development shop. We can pay them to build it and then we'll market it and we'll be off and going. And this is a common mistake. Most, most newbies make, and we certainly made it. So we, we met with these folks and took like nine months and, spent like $150,000 building what we thought green pal should be. And, uh, they finally got it done and we released it and it was a total, total failure. It didn't have the features it needed. It was buggy. It was, it, uh, it barely worked. Um, and a lot of it was our fault because we really didn't even know what the app should be. You know, we hadn't, we hadn't talked to any customers. We didn't know what we should be building. And the other thing was, was like, Looking back on it, the reason why it was such a failure and, and how and it was really stupid to try to do it that way was like it'd be like starting a restaurant, like a maybe like a five star restaurant, and not having a chef, uh, and not having any kind of proprietary recipes, and you just think that this restaurant is just going to uh, succeed because you have a storefront maybe and some people up front, maybe some servers great bartender, but no chef and no recipes. That's what starting a tech company with no developers, no coding experience, no like engineering capabilities at the core competency of the business. That's about what it's like. And so we wasted that money, wasted eight, nine months. And we came to the realization that if we were going to be in the tech business, we were going to have to learn how to build software. And so I, I took every online course you could take on front end engineering and my co-founder went to a uh, boot camp. It was a nine month boot camp where he went nights and weekends, uh, taking classes on, on how to build server side uh, development and, and, uh, and worked on green pal during the day. So it was really tough, but you know, it was kind of like table stakes. It was kind of like the ticket price to the game. We had to learn how to do the stuff that we were trying to do. The only thing that we really got out of the, the first version that we paid the development shop to build was that we, we at least hustled up like a hundred people to use it. And a lot of them were friends and family, and a lot of them were were acquaintances. And we passed out a lot of flyers all over Nashville, Tennessee, where we live. And, and we hustled up 100, maybe 200 people to try it out. And we met with as many of those people that would meet with us. And they would tell us everywhere we sucked. Uh, they would tell us everywhere the product stunk, which was great. We needed that feedback to, to build into the, to the next version. But there was one thing we never, we never saw was I don't need – they never said I don't need this. 
or we never saw like a meh, you know, it was like they were disappointed and upset that the app didn't deliver on the promise for push a button, get the grass cut. And for us, that was validation to keep going and that it was worth, you know, investing in ourselves to, to develop the skills we needed to, to play in this game. I love it. I love that you realize the value of those first hundred beta customers, because what you got from that was the feedback. You got the, the information you needed to, to build version two of your product that was able to be successful. Yeah, that's right. And, and, uh, it wasn't like we even knew to do that, you know, as simple as that sounds, most entrepreneurs and startups are resident to go solicit that feedback because it's painful and it hurts. But we were reading every book we, we could get our hands on. And a couple of books we read was, was The Lean Startup by Eric Reese. And then a predecessor to Eric Reese is, is Steve Blank. And he wrote a book called The Startup Owner's Manual. And what those books talk about is literally get out of the building, get, get away from the laptop, get out of the office and go talk to the dozen people who are using your crappy product and let them just tell you everything that stinks about it or why they don't use it anymore or what they wish it would do or how they normally get this thing done that you're trying to solve. That was one thing. That was one key insight we got was, was people would say, well, we would ask them, well, where do you normally find a lawn care service? And they would say, well, I'd ask for, for friends for recommendations. And then I'd, I'd eventually go to Google out of desperation and type lawn mowing service nearby me. And, and so like, not only did we learn about how the product needed to be improved, but we learned about how to market it you know, how, how we could, how we could get more customers, not have to pass out flyers anymore. So letting that early feedback guide you and be kind of like your free R and D almost is, is really critical when you're inventing something brand new from scratch. You know, you should really make it really easy for people to reach you. Like your cell phone number should be on your transactional emails. You know, you should personally handle all of the phone calls and chat support and email support. Cause you need that feedback to even know, what you're supposed to be doing if you're on the right track or not. I agree. That's so critical. Uh, many businesses fail trying to launch a product when they haven't gotten any customer feedback on that product through the process. That's a almost guaranteed recipe for failure. Okay. Uh, tell me about the greatest home run you've hit so far in your career. Well, I've had a lot of doubles, triples. Uh, I don't know. A $10 million business sale is pretty cool. Yeah, that was a home run. But like you think home run, you think, and it's, ha it's like, it's like, it's like one big one move. It's like one move on the, like, there's no one move on the chessboard that wins the chess game. Yeah, that's a good analogy. And so selling that business was a 15 year process. And so I guess when we got it done, it felt like a grand slam. Um, so yeah, you could say that was that was home run or, or, or grand slam worthy. Um, with Green Pal, it's, it's been much the same way. It's been it's been what uh, Jim Collins in, in the book Good the Great calls it a 30-mile march where it's just it's just slow and steady, slow and steady. There's no just one big thing. Um, but some some home runs that felt good were were some particular hires that that we've made along the way. You know, whenever you're building something from scratch, you're doing everything yourself, and then slowly you begin to learn, you know, what what these tasks look like and, and what these roles might look like and how you can put people in those roles and and get them a chance to, to excel and help drive the company forward. And so some of the home runs that we've made are, are some good, good hires. I mean, we hired, we've hired a really good head of uh, content and, and, and Google uh, search that's really helped us push the company forward. So those are, those always feel good. Some really good features that we've built uh, were home, our home runs. We built a, uh, an instant book feature where 
a homeowner comes on and to the prop for the platform and normally they get bids and then they hire one of those bids and the contractor comes out and mows it. Well, we spent like two years building an Instabook feature where we now know through the data that it's $33 to mow your yard and you can just hire them instantly and without having to wait for quotes. And so that was, that was a big home run for us. It helped it like it really moved the needle in terms of, of activations and, and overall sales. So, so a lot of times in, in entrepreneurship, there's no, like, there's no, there's no like knockout punch. There's always just these little jabs over and over again that eventually like win. And, and that's how, how it's been for us, you know, but there have been some, some home, home runs here and there. So when you create a marketplace or a social site, what you've created is to some extent a social site because you've you've brought together multiple parties and are making connections between those parties. Um, that's only possible when you you kind of have a chicken in the egg problem where you've got to have a lot of lawn mowing companies there when and then you've got to have the people come and they've got to kind of all come together at the same time. How did you get that going? How did you overcome that chicken and the egg problem? How did you get enough critical mass of users and, and market and grow your base at the beginning to get it going? Yeah, it's really hard because if you build it, they will not come. And it is, it's really challenging for any particularly local-based marketplace like ours to get over that that cold start problem and to get the critical mass of buyers and sellers at the party, so to speak. And uh, for us, it was just focus on one thing, one city, really particularly one corner of that city. And it's trying to get like what they call the atomic unit of the minimum number of buyers and minimum num number of sellers. So, so for like, for Airbnb, they, they believe that if you, you know, if you, to have an atomic unit that you have to have like 300 listings with five, with, with, with all with ratings to have critical mass uh, for Uber. They need to have like three drivers within 10 miles of you. For us, we knew that we needed to get a homeowner five prices, five quotes back less than 10 minutes. And so that meant that we needed to have around 20 or 30 contractors per zip code uh, that had homeowners signing up. And so the only way we kind of got over that was just to focus on, on this one city, which was the city we lived in, at the time, Nashville, Tennessee, and really just focus on one part of that city, which was the east side of Nashville, which was kind of like the uh, up and coming, maybe, I guess you could say, uh, working class part of town. And we just focused on getting liquidity and getting the right number of contractors on board and then marketing and getting the right number of homeowners on board. Because we knew if we could get like 100 or 1,000 people using it in that geo, then we could figure out the rest later. And that's what we did. So we, 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 cold called all over Craigslist for contractors that, that were advertising their lawn mowing services because we knew they were hungry. They wanted more business. We pitched them on the idea for using GreenPal to get more customers and, and, uh, and free to sign up. Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty no, uh, no brainer value proposition for them to, to get on boarded. And then, and then we went to work on the harder part of the transact of the, of the equation, which is the, the demand side, people who are spending the money. And we've passed out flyers, like I mentioned, and then we figured out a little bit of a content strategy. We figured out, okay, we can make, we can rank on Google. We can't rank on Google for lawn mowing Nashville, but we can rank on Google for lawn mowing East Nashville or yard cutting East Nashville or yard cutting Brentwood or yard cutting Hermitage, which are suburbs of Nashville. So it's really, really, really just a bottom up approach. Um, 
like distilling it down to this littlest number of in, the fewest number of inputs and then just executing on those things and then getting some sort of momentum and then funneling that to like kind of move our way up the stack, so to speak, to where we could then like move into other sub markets of Nashville and then dominate Nashville. And then slowly we, uh, you know, three years in, you know, like literally took us three years to launch our second market and uh, which was Atlanta. And then, and then we moved into Florida and now we're nationwide in the United States, a few hundred thousand people using it and still growing 30, 40% every year. And uh, it was very much a bottom up, like just focus on little things get traction on little things and then the little things compound and become big things. What is your best monetization secret or strategy? Well, you got to solve a problem people want to pay for. That's the, that's the first, uh, not necessarily secret. It's an obvious one, but it's one that's often gets overlooked. You know, if, if people, you know, if they don't have like a hair on fire problem that they're trying to solve, then it's going to be really hard to monetize. And, and so, you know, it, it, for us, the hair on fire problem is the grass is three feet tall and nobody will call the homeowner back and they need somebody to come cut it today. And we just build everything out from that hair on fire problem. So the monetization secret is really just find like the pain, like you stab the knife in their stomach and then twist it. And it's got to hurt that bad and then build out from there. Don't try to build a company or a business around a, a meh problem or a problem that somebody doesn't have pain around. I mean, like Uber solved a real pain point. I mean, gosh, getting a taxi before Uber really sucked. And so you got to be that good. You really got to start there and then build out from there. Because if you don't have that, you know, no amount of, of growth hacking sprinkled on top of the, of the product will, will fix it. You got to really start with a pain point, hair on fire problem that people are willing to pay for and then, and then move out, move outwards from that. Okay. So what secrets did you learn along the way that helped you to, to build your business to eight figures with no outside capital? One secret I learned was, you know, we didn't raise any money, which is rare for, for tech companies because usually like new fast growing new products that are tech tech oriented, raise a bunch of money, which when it works out, it's beautiful, but most of the time it doesn't work out. Most of the time it ends in a zero for everybody, uh, the sad reality. And so for us, I didn't really want to take us down that path. I, I wanted to kind of go slow and low. I knew nobody's going to like pull the rug out from under us. I knew if we just kept focusing on a good customer experience, we'd eventually get there. And so, but we didn't have a bunch of money. And so we had to kind of like, you know, do things scrappy. And I guess one secret that I learned was that you can you can get like 80 20 the way like our product is not uber good it's not like instacart good but it's pretty damn good it's probably 80 percent of the way there and so you know uber's a hundred billion dollar company instacart just got valued at 40 billion you know these companies have raised billions of dollars and and our product is not as good as theirs but it's pretty darn good and so one one way we've kind of gotten there is to just draft these big companies in terms of their product design, their their approach to building interfaces, their approach to marketing, their approach to to uh, things like emails and transactional emails and lifecycle emails and push notifications and SMS notifications and when they when they touch their customers at certain points of the journey and and really learn from how they do things and then apply it to what we do. And so one thing that I guess uh, it was probably year four or five that, that I did was I signed up for every gig economy app that ever existed. So I drove 
for Uber. I drove for Lyft. I walked dogs <laughs> on Rover and Wag. I delivered groceries on Instacart. I delivered hamburgers on Postmates. I, you know, every one of these gig economy apps, I use them as a supplier and as a consumer. And like one, I would do one a month and I did it for almost two years. And, and I'll take screenshots of every interface and I would do like a complete teardown of how the whole customer experience looked like. And then I would like put it into a, into a, uh, a repository of our kind of knowledge bank. And then I would apply these things to how we were building our product. And so while we didn't have, you know, $10 million to hire a world-class product development team, we got 80% or 90% of the way there just by looking at what they were doing and tearing down what they were doing and, and applying it to lawn care. And that really worked well for us. That, that was a big, not necessarily a secret, but just something that we did that was a little weird and, and it helped us kind of get over that hump. Yeah. I applaud you for what you did. That is, that is really brilliant. Most entrepreneurs don't have the, the discipline to do that. Um, Russell Brunson calls it funnel hacking, where you go look at yeah. other funnels that other successful entrepreneurs have created that are doing something similar to you, uh, maybe in a different niche. And then you, you learn from, them. you don't copy them, but you, you use them as a starting point. And um, I remember when I was in college, my freshman year, I took a songwriting class. The first song they had us write, they had us pick one of our favorite songs. And then they had us model our first song after that favorite song that we had picked. And by the end, the song you created didn't look like the one you started from, but you learned about chord progressions and you learned about song structure and hooks and you know things like that you you learn from from great songs and and use that to model yours off of and and you did that same thing i, I remember when i got my mba they talked about r d isn't research and development but it's rip off and design right you <laughs> yeah you learn what everybody else does and then you design it to work from you don't reinvent the wheel you go find out what everybody else is already doing and then you figure out how to bring all those pieces together and make it uniquely work for you. That's right, man. And, you know, it's something that can kind of gets you over that cold start. It can get you at least on first base and, you know, let the big guys, let, let the, let the apples and the, you know, Airbnbs and Ubers and Amazons of the world innovate and be at the cutting edge of some of these things. Whereas you don't have the resources to do that and you can kind of fast follow a lot of what they're doing. Yeah. Now, one thing that you kind of do need to innovate on and get scrappy and creative around is distribution and marketing and growth because you can't just copy what everybody else is doing on Facebook ads and succeed because they're, they're not going to uh, displace them. And so you really kind of have to innovate on how you're going to get more customers and how you're going to do that in a, in a competitive and, dis and differentiated way. Um, and so you do have to get creative there. Um, and so maybe that's where you can focus, you know, all of your weight certainly has been for us, you know, 67% of what we do is just around distribution and marketing and getting more eyeballs on the product. And that often gets overlooked. You know, again, if you build it, they will not come. So it doesn't matter how good you are at product design or how good you are at some of these things. If you don't have a, a growth engine, a growth strategy, the, the company's not going to take off. Okay. At the beginning, we promised the audience that you are going, going to teach us how to win by never give up, giving up. Can you tell us about one or more times where you've won by not giving up? Certainly has been the case. Every success I've had in, in business with, with my first company, 15 years, now my second company, 10 years. It's just like it's, it's, it's consistency as a superpower. It's, it's just for, for me, like GreenPal, 
the first, like first three, four years were really tough. And, and uh, like, I think it was like year three or four. I mean, we still weren't able to pay ourselves a good salary. We were making like hundreds of dollars, you know, and, and it's living off of ramen noodles. And, and uh, it was really, really, really challenging. But like the thing that worked for me was, was just a personal psychology thing that I'm always going to be working on my best idea, no matter what. So by default, like non-negotiable, I'm always going to be working on my best idea. And so I guess, fortunately, I'm not terribly creative. I've had one good idea in a decade. And so, and so like those days that you just don't want to go in the office and, and put in a 10 hour day, well, you don't have any other alternative. You're going to work on your best idea. And so that's, that's how I got through and my team got through the first four or five years was to really, 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 really hard. Now we've got a great team of 40 something people. We're making money. We're profitable. We got specialists in place in certain roles and that's a lot of fun. And, but those early days, it very much feels like pushing on a string. And, uh, and so if you just have, if you have your mind made up that no matter what you're going to be pouring your life's soul into your best idea, then, then it kind of takes care of a lot of that stuff. Yeah. How to win by never giving up. So you're, you're basically saying one of your key strategies to win by never giving up is staying focused on your most important thing, not allowing yourself to get distracted by all the different shiny objects and ideas, but disciplining yourself to know your best idea and keeping yourself focused on that. That's right. You know, here we are, we're a decade in and we are still working on how do we make lawn care services Faster, cheaper, quicker, more reliable, smoother, more seamless. This is the same thing we were working on 10 years ago. Now it's better and better and better, but we're not doing a bunch of different things. We're really just like focusing on the one thing. And uh, in Jim Collins, good to great, he calls this the hedgehog concept, which is like a hedgehog. All he does is one thing. He rolls up in a little ball and he's got little spikes and you can't, you can't attack him. And like, that's just, he's just the best at that thing. Like, and so for, for us, we're the best in the world at ordering a lawn mowing service. And so whatever your idea is, you have to be the best in your market at it. And if you just by default work on that one thing for a decade, you know, you will be successful. And, uh, and that's how it's played out for us, you know, and, and a lot of it is managing your own personal psychology. And for me, I've just made a decision, no matter what, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to get out of bed. I'm going to work on my best idea. And I'm going to put everything I got into it. I wonder how much, of that personal psychology you're talking about is about properly setting our expectations. I've, I've heard it said that expectations is directly proportional um, to our happiness. And, and when our ex our reality is a lot lower than our expectations, we're not happy when our reality is higher than our expectations. Um, we're much more likely to be happy in our lives. So maybe part of it is going into it when we start these new businesses and, we set our expectations, understanding we're going to be eating ramen for three or four years, right? We understand things are going to be lean and we're just going to have to start on, you know, focusing on it intensely and that, that it's going to take time. I think too many, too often people go in and they think, you know, they're going to launch it in January and by February, they're going to be profitable and they're setting expectations in a place where they're going to be miserable. Yeah, it's uh, I, I like that. And I, I think another way I've heard it put is that success is results minus expectations. And so it's like, that's what success is. It's just, it's, it's just when the results outweigh what it, you expected it to do. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so for me, yeah, it's definitely been the case. And, 
And I, I think I think for, for for one thing, you know, we look in the we see in the tech press, we see in the business media a lot of these overnight successes. And when you really look at them, they never are overnight successes. They really never are. Like the thing that X, Y, and Z company founder did in a year, two or three years, you always find out that like they had crashed and burned on one or two or three other things before that. And, and, or this other thing was named something else or, or they were like hacking on stuff in high school and had created something that had gotten, you know, it's always like, the results of five or 10 or 15 years, it's never that one year or two years. So, so a lot of our, our, our unrealistic expectations comes around like from that. And I think if you can really manage your expectations, set, set stretch goals and work your ass off to hit them, but also you gotta like, you gotta celebrate the small things. Like, like for us, our first goal that we set was we just wanted a hundred transactions a week. That was it. Now we do thousands and thousands a day, but we wanted a hundred a week and we worked our ass off for a whole year. And I think the end of that first year, we hit like 58 and that was like a big punch in the stomach. But when we finally got to a hundred, we celebrated it. And while that meant was like meant pennies in revenue, it really wasn't anything material in terms of a real business. To me, it did indicate that I knew if we could get to a hundred, I knew we could get to a thousand and I knew if we could get to a thousand, we can get to 10,000. And I knew if we get to 10,000, we get to a hundred. And so it's like set, like you have to have big, like a big audacious goal, but you also have to think and act very, very small and celebrate those little small wins because you know that they will eventually compound and, and lead to big, big numbers. Thank you so much, Brian, for sharing your stories and insights with us today. To learn more about or connect with Brian, you can find him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram, or visit his website at yourgreenpal.com. You can also download my free ebook about passion marketing and learn how you can become a top priority of your ideal customers at passionmarketing.com. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode, and I wish you success in building your technology business. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.